welcome. I'm Connor Beaton, and this is The Man Talk Show. Joining me today is Doug Bobst, who is an award-winning personal trainer, author, speaker, and business owner. Those credentials, however, and accolades are really a result of his own transformation. He's a former felon and drug addict sentenced to months in jail due to being found guilty of possession with the intent to sell. He chose to use his time locked in a small cell to beat his own demons and reinvent himself thanks to a combination of faith, family, and fitness. He since has helped hundreds of people improve their health and wellness and written three books uh, over the course of the last few years, which are uh, really a reflection of his personal story. The first one is From Felony to Fitness to Free. The next is Faith, Family, Fitness, and his latest book, The Heart of Recovery, where he interviewed roughly 50 of the most inspiring individuals who have all beat addiction from all walks of life with hopes of helping others get into recovery. So on this episode, we dive into a number of different topics, um, but clearly um, one of the main things that we talk about is Doug's personal story. So we dive deep into uh, his past, into what led him into a life of um, a little bit of crime and drugs and his addiction. Uh, he shares his own personal experience with his addiction, um, which is very powerful considering that over the years of working with so many people, what I've come to realize is that addiction touches us all. Addiction is um, probably a part of your life in some way, whether you know it or not. Addiction has definitely played a part in my life and my upbringing. And so Doug is uh, courageous enough to share a lot about his experience and what led him there, how he got out of it, and the work that needs to happen in order to not only support people that are around us that are addicts, uh, but to support ourselves with our own addictive behaviors or with the behaviors that are really holding us back. So this is a great episode all about addiction, all about the patterns, the habits, the trauma, the pain uh, that leads us down the path of addiction and how we can support the people around us that might be going through that experience. So without any further delay, please welcome Doug Bobst. Connor, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, it was a. I mean, it was a pleasure. You you had me on your show. I, I got to learn a little bit about your story, and uh, I was like, yeah, this is this is going to be great. I think I think this conversation is going to be going to benefit a lot of people. So let's just uh, start where I start with everyone, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Well, I think what really comes to mind is that when I was incarcerated on felony drug charges back in two thousand eight, when I thought my life was over, I was suicidal. I was in the depths of despair. Um, I had a horrible drug habit and my cellmate got me to start exercising. And when I was in jail, I was 40 or 50 pounds overweight. I was heavier than I am now. It could have been a model for Pillsbury. So exercise wasn't something that really came so easy to me. And I remember getting down to do a push-up, couldn't do a push-up, couldn't even do one from my knees. And with his motivation and encouragement and they're training me every day, um, I was able to do a set of 10 push-ups and run a mile. And that defining moment for me was so cr crucial and powerful because it gave me the confidence, clarity, and connection to myself that I needed to beat this addiction. It allowed me to change the way I talked to myself. It allowed me to change the way I felt about myself. It allowed me to change who I was as a person because I was now taking um, all this pain I had in my past, all the pain of addiction and abuse that I suffered as a kid. 
And I was channeling it, channeling it in a way that was more positive through fitness, through exercise. And it gave me a sense of purpose, sense of accomplishment, commitment to myself that I was like, all right, I'm now loving myself enough to invest in my body to be able to set goals and achieve them and to gain more understanding of, of who I was. As a per- like all these things that we know exercise does for us, they catapulted me into wanting to change a lot of other areas of my life when I got out of jail. Mm, that's powerful, man. I mean, maybe, you know, I'd love to explore this a little bit with you because addiction and, and recovery is something that, that I've touched on briefly once before um, with another guest. But I think, you know, after doing years and years of, of work with individuals, it's really, uh, it's really shocking how many people deal with addiction and, and maybe not themselves dealing with addiction, but how many people are actually impacted by addiction. I remember I, I did an event once where I, I asked the audience, we had a, a man talks event was where we had about 300 people there. And I said, you know, who here has, either dealt with addiction themselves or had somebody in their immediate family deal with addiction. And literally like 95% of the hands went up in the room. And so it was really, it's really fascinating because I think it's one of these things that most people are not talking about. You know, a lot of people like are not unsure how to handle. And so give, maybe just give us a little bit of context as to, you know, what did life look like for you that led you into, uh, that led you into addiction, that led you into those spaces? Uh, I mean, a lot of self-medication and self-sabotage from my childhood. You know, I dealt with a lot of trauma. I dealt with like abuse of every kind. I was bullied in school. School. I grew up in a divorced home. And uh, I was always the kid who loved sports, right? I loved playing sports. I loved watching sports. I like collecting baseball cards. The issue, though, was that I, was, I couldn't run. I couldn't jump. And I was uncoordinated. So I, I was always like the last kid picked. I was always like the one getting cut from the teams, even though I would see all my friends and people that I hung out with, like making these teams. I think at the end of the day, what really hurt me the most was being picked on in school a lot and told that I looked like I had Down syndrome um, and that, you know, it was fat, like all these things that I started to believe because I started to believe like these lies that if it's that I was telling myself and that other people were saying to me because I just had no confidence in myself. I had no swagger that was like, you know what, like I got to step up and just say, you know what, I don't believe any of these things. Right. And it's just, I just got to a point when I was like 14 where I, I just was so unhappy with who I was. I was so unhappy that, you know, I didn't have a girlfriend. I was so unhappy that I was horrible at sports that the first opportunity I got to, numb myself was when I started smoking pot, which is funny now, like looking back, that was like, gosh, almost 20 years ago and pot's like legal everywhere. Right. <laughs> but back then it was like a really stigmatized thing. And one hit off a marijuana pipe turned into me smoking every day. And I felt this monkey come off my back in a way that was, it was soothing. And I felt at peace with myself. And I felt like I didn't, all the problems that I once thought I had were now gone and it gave and, and, and pot gave me that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what's interesting is like, you know, the, the avoidance of feeling the hard things, you know, of like feeling shame or feeling not enough or feeling the lack of. And I, I think that's one of the things that a lot of people that go down that path mm-hmm. struggle with. And, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in learning 
more about the sort of like mindset because I think one of the biggest challenges for people that that haven't had an addiction or haven't labeled that they have an addiction is that they they probably know someone in their life that has or is struggling with that and one of the biggest gaps is trying to understand the mind of an addict right like why they're doing certain things and, and I think that can be one of the most challenging things right especially if you have a parent or a sibling or you know a, a child that is going through addiction it can be very challenging to try and understand the mindset of like why they keep choosing that behavior. So can you give us a little bit of insight into what it's like to be in that mind frame? So you, you know, you started smoking pot, where, where did that, where did that go? Like, tell us a little bit more about your journey and, and a little bit more about the internal mindset that was going on. Yeah. So I mean, like once I started smoking, it's just, I was like, Oh, okay. Like I can numb myself out and not think about my problems by smoking pot. And then I was like, okay, like, well, what's next? Like, then I needed to smoke more pot because like, as we know, like once you, you're not chasing the drug, you're chasing the feeling, I think, right? You're chasing that numbing feeling. I think at the end of the day, people are, they're looking for a way out when they're struggling with addiction like that, when they're, they're looking for a way out of their pain, right? And you do a really good job of talking about how you kind of have to sit with your pain. You have to navigate through it. You can't just like push it away. I think, you know, people, um, when they're in those moments, they want to get out. They want to stop doing drugs. They want to stop abusing themselves. They want to stop talking so poorly. They, just, they don't know how. And their self-esteem and their, their level of confidence about themselves is so freaking low that they don't even believe they could do it if, even if they tried. Mm. Right? So what's the easy thing to do? Do more drugs. Chase that feeling. And for me... You know, pot, it only became, pot only became enough until it became, it didn't anymore, right? And then like, I had to find other things. And some of the other things that I chose to use were cocaine. And I had really bad anxiety growing up, just from a lot of this, the abuse and stuff that I developed. And I had panic attacks. So like cocaine and anxiety go about as well together as eating pepperoni pizza every day and trying to, you know, be a bikini model. Like, yeah. Right? Like total opposite. And I remember one night, I ended up in the emergency room. I was about, I was like, I was like 17 or 18. I'd just been kicked out of my dad's house. I was kicked out of my mom's house on my 16th birthday. She busted me with some pot and I just had a party in her house when she wasn't home like a few weeks before that. So talk about, I mean, and I think this goes into like your show, like as a man, okay, I'll talk about this because this was a pivotal moment for me. Having that rejection from my mom at 16 killed me, nearly mm -hmm. killed me. And I remember just, you know, words were said and all these things. I told her how much I hate, like all these things. And I got kicked out and, and then shipped to my dad's house the next day. Who, By the way, I had a very strained relationship with. And so it was a big slap in the face to me. And she wouldn't talk to me unless we were like in a therapist's office. She wouldn't um, communicate. And like the time I, I felt I needed her most, mm. Right. And I know obviously you and your wife, you talk a lot about like relationships and how that your childhood and everything can impact that, right? And so I, I learned the I learned down the road how much that impacted me. And the reason I'm sharing all this is because this is real time, like what I was going through. And I'm looking back now and able to reflect on all that just so if somebody's listening, that's either in that moment or is trying to figure out where certain things are coming from, that maybe this will relate to them, right? And so I'm in the hospital. And I just got, like I said, I just got kicked out of my dad's house and 
I was high on Coke, high on pot, smoking cigarettes, like all this stuff. My face started going numb. My heart started racing. And, you know, I was the chunky monkey back then, right? So, like, I was a <laughs> little heavier set kid than I am now. I, I just started feeling like I was going to die. So, I remember going to, I was at my, I was sleeping on my buddy's couch at the time. And I remember going to his mom. I was like, I was like, oh my God, like, I'm, I think I'm dying. And so we go to, we go to the emergency room. I like run into the ER and I'm like, help, I'm dying. And they're like, you're not dying. Like, sit down, sir. And I'm like screaming, you know, cause I'm going crazy. And they're like, you know, I think what you're having is a panic attack. And I never knew what that was. Cause this is like, again, like 15 years ago, I didn't know what a panic attack was. Like I had no idea any of that. And like, I think what, what started to happen was I started to read about anxiety and more about panic. And I bought a book and, you know, all these things that we try to do to help. But all my friends and I did at this point, point in my life was we rode around smoke pot and did drugs together. Mm. So I would, I couldn't do that. Like I was like, all right, how can I still hang out with my friends and get high without having a panic attack? And the thing is, I couldn't <laughs> without <laughs> another, another external substance coming to my life. And that's where I found Oxycontin was because, you know, pragmatically, they'd be like, all right, Doug, like, if you want to stop having panic attacks, stop doing drugs and change who you hang out with. That would be like the logical answer. Well, I chose the opposite. And I think what, where that led me was a five milligram Percocet to then numb, numb the pain of the anxiety, the drugs, everything else at that point in my life, snowballed into three, 400 milligrams of, of Oxycontin going in my nose every single day. And I, I had no, I'm not blaming any, anybody for my actions other than myself. I will say and be honest that I didn't know how addictive it was. Like I really, I knew I wasn't putting kale in my body, but I didn't know that like it was going to um, affect me in that way. I mean, I was like, all right, it's not heroin. It's okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, and that kind of led me down into a terrible place, which again, I ended up in jail. Did that, yeah, answer, I mean, you, did that answer your question good enough? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's good, man. It's good. I mean, unpacking uh, unpacking that journey, I think, is important, right? Because it's it's like these, these small decisions along the way, you know, ignoring some of the challenges. I mean, it, it's it's very indicative of like what a lot of people go through that, that have addiction, right? That there's there's abuse in some way there's neglect or abandonment and you know you sort of you're you're describing all of those things right like you're describing neglect abuse abandonment like all of all of those mm -hmm. pieces sort of in there and not being able to have someone to sort of sit down with you and say hey looks like you're feeling a lot you know looks like a lot's coming up let's let's talk about how to deal with some of this and i think people underestimate also just the the tumultuousness of what it's like to be a teenager you know i mean I, I think people remove themselves from how chaotic a teenager's internal state is you know like i remember being a teenager and i, I was a i was a disaster you know I was yeah. a complete mess and and if if people would have met you know 14 or 15 or 16 year old me i'm like who the hell is this kid right but you know i think you you go through puberty you start having testosterone course through your body I mean, you get, you're, you're getting boners on the bus, you're getting picked <laughs> on, you know, like it, this, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a melee of a bunch of different things, right? And that, that sensory overload can lead us to wanting to find ways to sort of cope or numb or deal with the situation. I want to talk just briefly because, you know, you've, you've written uh, a really interesting book called The Heart of Recovery. 
and you you sort of like talk to real people about their mm-hmm. stories, their lives. And I, I think it's important to to bring some of these um, bring some of these stories to light. And not that we need to talk about other people's stories. So we're going to stick with yours. But um, speak to speak to some of like the epidemic that's happening in the states. Because I think one of the things that again, what what other you know we we sort of hear about like the war on drugs. We hear about mm. like how how easy was it for you to actually acquire drugs. Uh, well, back in the day, it was quite easy. I mean, because once you, you are, you're, you're, when you're around it enough and you're immersed yourself enough in it, like that's all that's there. So all my friends, all we did was smoke pot. And so it was easy access that some someone in our, in our circle knew where to get it. Right. And it's just like the more drugs you did, the more people you met, the more people you knew. So it just turned into this easy opportunity to be like, Oh, like who's getting drugs today. And then I became the supplier. I became the guy that was moving pounds of pot a week, hustling, making money, but putting all my profits up my nose, right? Um, I, remember, I remember it was like, um, you know, I remember, I don't know if you ever listened to Biggie Smalls back in the day, yeah. but he wrote that song, The Ten Crack Commandments. And I broke every commandment there was probably, most of them. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, and so like literally like I was just bleeding money because I was just, putting stuff in my, like putting all my profits in my nose, going to strip clubs, all these things. And then, so as I started selling people more drugs, I started meeting more people who are in the community. I started getting involved with more people that, um, were just not okay with, I mean, we're not okay with the fact that I I didn't have drugs. Like if I didn't have drugs, like I wasn't, you weren't cool to be around. They were like, Oh, unless you got my drugs, don't come around. And I started really learning that, you know, in the community, a lot of people, unless you have something for them, it, it's like they're really not truly connected. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's more, it's more about the, it's, yeah, it's more about the drug than it is the connection and the camaraderie and the friendship, right? Yeah, I mean, I think what I've heard some people talk about is like every nothing mattered other than the next hit or the next drink or the next, you know, rail or like whatever, whatever the case may be. And so everything was sort of geared towards that one that one focal point. But when you look at the current situation, you know, in in the United States, and you look at like the sort of epidemic that's unfolding, how easy it is to access to to get a lot of the, a lot of these drugs, especially prescription drugs, really like oxycotton, you know, are are they're the epidemic now, right? It's like more people are dying from that. More people are using those types of drugs. Why do you feel like that is like what's what's happening in the in the in the system that that is allowing us to be able to access all those types of drugs? Like, do you feel like I'm I'm just curious to get your personal opinion, having been immersed in in that space, like how people are getting them now? Not not necessarily how they're getting them, but more so how is the system set up for that type of easy access? I think it's a lot harder now than it used to be. I think that's why you're seeing a lot more deaths because of fentanyl because they've cracked down on a lot of the doctors. They've cracked down on a lot of the pharmacies. I mean, back in in the day, you know, I had people working at pharmacies. I knew knew people that had access to these pills and the cost of them was so much cheaper than it is now. And I think there's so much greed out there, right? For people on Mm -hmm. who are selling them, like whether it's a doctor, whatever, they're like, oh, if I can make couple grand here in a few minutes by getting a script or pills or whatever like i'll do that and and i think people you know once they hit that point that like 
it, once they get in that cycle of addiction, it, the, the high almost becomes more like, how am I going to get it? And where am I going to get it from? than the fact that you're doing it, like the mm-hmm. fact that you're doing it, it's like, once you do it, it's like, almost like, oh, now what? Now I got to chase the next high. Now I got to chase the next, you know, thing that's going to be put into my body. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's almost like a game, right? It is. It's like, it's, it's a very sort of like game mentality. It's like, I'm going to pursue this thing that's going to make me feel good. I'm going to get to win, right? Like, yeah, I, I can see that. I can see that for sure. Okay. So, so fast forward a little bit. What, what happened in terms of, of uh, going to prison? What was, what was that like? Just maybe unpack that time mm-hmm. in your life for us a little bit. Yeah. So like I said, I was selling uh, copious amounts of pot back in 2008 and Cinco de Mayo, everything kind of came to a head. I was riding around with a few of my friends to go pick up some Oxycontin when I was 20 years old. And I flashed my high beams of a headlight because I had a headlight that I've been meaning to change for months. And my for all my friends were like, were like, dude, you're riding dirty. You can't be riding around with a busted headlight. So I flashed this. I flashed my high beams at this police officer who then pulls me over of course and then one thing leads to the next and I, I feel like subconsciously i wanted to get arrested because i asked him he's like can i search your car and i was like yeah go ahead and i had a half a pound of pot and a couple grand in cash in the car so he ended up searching it finding everything and then um you know i got arrested went to jail and then i went to court um this was may I went to court in september because i had to get arraigned for the felony all that stuff and when i went to court in september september 30th 2008 the judge um, he looked at me and he's like, you know what? Like, I'm going to make an example out of you, but I'm also going to give you a second chance. I had a clean record, I think as an adult until that point. And he's like, so I'm going to sentence you to five. Cause they wanted me to snitch on people. And I didn't. So he, he, and I was just almost like, well, I mean, I was, I was also, I was obviously concerned about getting killed by somebody. Cause I already, you know, had somebody, I had a drug dealer, five grand. He wanted to kill me before, like, you know, I paid him off before I went to court, but I just knew that feeling. And then also like at the end of the day, I just knew this was my fault. Like I was like, you don't, you don't snitch on people. Like to me, it's like the biggest cardinal rule of like drug dealing. Like you're in the mm-hmm. game, you get in it, you get caught. It's on you. Like that's your risk. Just like anything else. Like I, I think now what that's taught me is how important integrity is to me and truth. Um, because I look at like how I used to live as a kid, and I was always running around lying and telling people what they wanted to hear so that I could look better. So even now in my current, like anytime I slip up into those old, I'm always like, it's a triggering for me. And it's like, I want to, I want to tell the truth, like no matter what. And sometimes it's hard for people to hear because there's like times where you probably maybe, but it's like the truth is will always set you free. So the reason I share that is because when I went into court, when I went to court, he sentenced me to five years, everything suspended, but 90 days, 200 hours community service, all kinds of fines and drug classes. And he was like, but if you complete everything without messing up, I'll take the felony off your record. And at the time, I'm like 20, right? I was like, I'm not going to live to see my 25th birthday. I'd lost a bunch of my friends until this point. And so I was like, there's no freaking way I'm going to make it out. And what ended up happening was it was the it was the biggest blessing ever. And it gave me purpose. It gave me an opportunity to reinvent myself and have the truth in, in who I was to, to change. And I went to jail a few weeks later. You'd think, though, like after all that, the arrest – going to court, having the judge be like, if I catch you in here again, you're going to the big house. All these things that I would have not done drugs. And I, I continued to use, um, got high right before I went to jail and um, detox cold turkey for like two to three weeks. 
which is horrible. Like my my addiction got so bad, man, that like half my left nostril was missing, so corroded with with stuff. And um, when I got there, I detoxed, and when I got through the detox, which was horrible, like I, they didn't really give me anything for it. They gave me some stuff for like nausea, but nothing. I mean, I was having panic attacks. I was obviously I felt like I was trying to crawl out of my own skin. I was having un- uncontrollable bowel movements. All the stuff we know that like you know you don't have to be an expert to know what kind of like withdrawal goes. To, you have to go through with withdrawal. Then the real truth hits that you're in jail. You're like, oh crap, here I am. I'm in jail. I got to eat, you know, the three meals a day, all this stuff. And my cellmate, like I said at the beginning, was like in the defining moment for me. He was a guy who was like a more jacked version of Brad Pitt from Fight Club. And he was in there doing like thousands of push ups, pull like hours and hours of, of working out. And he's like, you're going to start working out with me. And I was like, dude, bull crap. Have you seen me? And I remember, um, can I cuss on here? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I just want to make sure before I and I and I'm going to preface this is that this is not an attempt for any kind of toxic masculinity, anything where I'm trying to put anybody down. This was back in 2008, and we're in jail. And this is what he said to me. I was being the victim. I was blaming my parents. I was blaming because he was asking me my story. You know, he's like, "Why? Why are you here?" And I'm like, "You know, like my parents. I was bullied." He's like, "Dude, quit being a fucking bitch." And I was like. I was like, what? And then I was like, I was like, why are you saying that? He was like, I was like, but it's my parents. He's like, dude, he was like, so many people are in the same predicament and situations that you're in. So many people have gone through, parents got divorced. They were picked on and they're not in jail. He said, I'll tell you what, man. He's like, you can either be a man or you can be a bitch. He's like, you can be a man and own your choices, own your responsibilities, own the fact that you're freaking here and you have an obligation to yourself to change. You have an obligation to your family to change. He's like, we're going to be a bitch and go cry in the corner like most people will in here. Mm. And did I like hearing that? I mean, no, who does, right? But it was hard truth. I get back to these hard truths Mm -hmm. that I needed to hear. And that I was like, you know what? I think he's right. And what happened from there was I just started to take more interest in him and we would be up and he'd be telling me stories about, cause he'd been in prison for like 10 years and he would always tell me stories about jail and prison and that thing, that sort of thing. And I think at the end of the day, his words really impacted me in such a meaningful way because he told me things that were like, were hard to hear, but with brutal honesty. And I think like, that's a big issue today in our societies. Everybody like, likes to be coddled. Everybody doesn't want to hear the hard truth. And the hard truth is what eventually like will set them free, right? Everybody wants to like, you know, kind of, and and I'm not saying anybody's wrong for that. I'm just saying like, it's just my opinion. And I, I think, you know, he said some other things to me. When I got down to do my first pushup, I was like, why can't I do a pushup? He's like, cause you're freaking fat. Hmm. And I was like, huh? <laughs> and <laughs> he was like, well, what? And I'm like, I guess he's right. Like I do have. And so I never wanted to be called fat again. I never wanted to be called a bitch. Like I never wanted to be called any of these words again. So now it's like, okay, like where's my, where's my responsibility in this? Where's my act? Where's my ownership? Because I believe the key to success in anything in life, whether you're in jail, whether we're in this pandemic, whether you're struggling is owning your stuff and not blaming everybody for your problems. Are we going to be perfect with it? No, of course not. It's a journey. We're on this journey together. And the moment we think that, we're going to be perfect. We're 100% healed. Like, stay away from people like that because mm-hmm. 
they're full of shit. <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a continual journey, and you're always going to have things to work on. And I learned that the hard way when I was in jail. And so when I got out, you know, I was able to use a lot of that moving forward to be like, all right, in this situation, am I acting like a man or am I acting like a bitch? Am I acting like my highest self? And that's kind of where I'm at now with my life is like, all right, what would my highest self do? How would my highest self have changed the situation? How would my highest self have responded? Hmm. And I think, you know, it's a hard truth to look at, but we all have to have these non-negotiables and values and beliefs within ourselves. And a lot of it I picked up when I was in jail. So my biggest setback became my biggest blessing. Hmm. And I think it's really hard for people to hear that. Because so many people, when they're in the thick of the mud, when they're in the thick of things, they say, fuck, my life's over. Shit, I'm emasculated. Like I, I shared it and I – I mean, should I kind of keep going? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I shared a story yesterday on my Instagram where I felt completely emasculated as a male where – this was like three years ago where I thought I had everything together. I was – you know, I think I'm a, a very attractive guy. I mean, I'm confident in that, not in an arrogant way. Um, I mean, when people tell you you look like Mark Wahlberg, I think you got to be uh, <laughs> you got to be somewhat attractive, right? Um, half kidding, but I do get that a lot. But anyway, you know, I just you know I had you know written some books, and I was like a, a good guy who just you know I thought was a hard worker. All this. Well, anyway, I got screwed over. I was dating a girl for a few months, and in my gut, I knew something was off. I just knew something was off. And I remember we had all these deep conversations about what we wanted. But just the whole time I was like, she was asking me these weird questions. And I was like, there was something off. And I couldn't tell what it was. So New Year's Eve 2017, I found out I was like the side piece. And I was in her phone as Lauren. And I remember sitting there with her. because I had to, And I found out, it's like, I think like the universe, God, whatever you call it, provides you and whatever, provides you the truth. It will provide you the truth. And we're sitting there, my phone happened to die. I, I needed to use her phone to call to pick up my dog, um, Shadow, not my friend, my dog, my actual dog. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, we were talking about jail, so I don't want anyone to think that's what I call my friend. Like I just, but anyway, so, and I ended up just going through her phone and I was like, why, why am I here as Lauren? And then she told me that she had a boyfriend. I was like, shine your object. And she wanted me to stick around. And I was like, no way. Like, are you see, like, if, if you're doing this to, to your boyfriend, like, what are you going to do to me? Mm-hmm. And afterwards, as hard as that was, and I didn't like, I wasn't like in love or anything. Not, I wasn't at all. But as a man, I felt so emasculated. I felt ashamed. I felt embarrassed because, like, here I am, like, supposed to have my 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 life together, talking to people about, you know, surrounding yourself with the best people and all these things. I talk. I've been talking about now for the last seven or eight years. And here I am, I just got completely blindsided. Mm. And I hit another moment in my my journey where I had the choice to be a man or a bitch. And for a while, I was acting like a little victim. And I was so upset with myself. I was so ashamed. And I remember I had a coach be like, Doug, like, you're going to either be a victim or you're going to be a victor. Same, he said the same thing in, in different words. And he was like, are you really going to let this like bring – he's like, you have such a special gift in this world. Are you really going to let this bring you down in the way it's brought you down? And and, it, and obviously, it wasn't like I just shot up and was like, you know, he's right. But it, was, it took me like a day or two and I snapped out of it. 
ended up having my most successful year ever. I wrote my, my next book. I met a bunch of people. I got on all kinds of... And so I share this because it goes back to my whole thing in jail. It goes back to that mentality. It goes back to there's responsibility in this and how I handle things today when I hit adversity is so much different. People are like, oh, like, so your life must be easy. And I'm like, no, like I still have the same problems. I still have a lot of stuff I'm working on. I still have, I had a lot of things that have happened, you know, or whatever. Just how, how you handle it becomes differently. Yeah, Do I, I get mean, reactive I sometimes? I mean, yes, we, I, I I'm not going to say I don't get reactive, but I'm not out like, you know, smoking pot or, um, doing drugs or in the strip to like mask my pain. Does that make sense? Does this, does this make, I mean, hopefully I brought that all back full circle. Yeah. 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 No, hundred percent. I mean, I think one of the, one of the interesting things that you kind of dropped in there was this, the, the concept of the victim, right? And I think the victim left unchecked uh, can really start to spiral and the victim left unchecked. And this is, this is what happens for a lot of addicts, right? Is that they experience yeah. abuse, they experience abandonment. And all of a sudden the victim gets so strong that, that they, that they, they merge with it, right? They fuse, which like psychologically, we'd, we'd call this fusion, fusing with the victim. Yeah. And then that victim mentality becomes the thing that's sort of driving the show. And it's always sort of like, you know, poor me, I got to, and, and you want to escape it, right? And I think that, you know, I can hear this part of you that has kind of done the dance with the victim. You know, have, done- Trust me, I have, and I get it. And I see a lot of it. And I can tell, I mean, and that's not to say, I think all, we're all human, human, and we all will play the victim at some point in our lives. I mean, continually, it's just the awareness of it. And then being able to check yourself and come back and be like, okay, like, can, can I have changed the way I handle it? Where did I go wrong? How can I respond going forward? And that's what's different, I think, with where I am now and before. Because before, it's just easy to be the victim. It's easy to yeah. be the victim. And you see like... You know, I've gone through a lot of therapy. I've done a lot of different modalities of healing just because I've always like, even though something's worked for me and I've continued to work, I'm always like learning about different things because I want to like continue to evolve in, in areas that I'm passionate about. And obviously being the victim is a, it can be as a trauma response. It's a response, it's a response to something internally where you don't feel valued yourself and so feel good, so good about yourself. So blaming other people makes you feel better. And at the end of the day, what I've learned, and I I don't know if if I'm the only one, that when you blame other people, it feels really good for like a minute. And then afterwards, when you kind of come back down, you're more ashamed because you're like, wow, like I should have handled this differently or, you know, why? I mean, and it's just the same when you like snap on somebody. Yeah. It's a lack of, it's a lack of self, self leadership, self power, right? We give, we give our power away in those moments where, where, where we blame other people for our circumstances, even though they, they probably have a part in it. Um, if we're making them wholly responsible, we are, we are taking away our own power in those moments. And I think that that's where, that's where a lot of people sort of fall down a very slippery slope. So, all right. So fitness came into the, the equation. Um, you know, you've become a, a personal trainer uh, and really like built up quite a, quite a, a fast fascinating brand and like yeah. built up a brand around that why fitness like was it mm-hmm. was it out of that moment like did did jail brad pitt 
sort of like inspire you or like how did how did fitness come to be the sort of staple that because it seems like you use that as a conduit to teach people about themselves yeah i mean i think i i saw how much success uh, fitness played in my life i saw the role that it helped me that i wanted to then take those lessons and help other people because I thought that was like, I always thought that there was a missing link. I think there's so many people that just felt that fit, that they worked out for the physical benefits. Like, no, there's so many mental benefits. There's so many emotional benefits. There's so many like, you know, spiritual benefits that like are like underlying underneath of all those physical ones that really will change the game for people. Mm. And I wanted to then take all the the lessons I've learned from my cellmate and apply them and to help other people unpack themselves. Mm. And I was able to relate to people. I was able to be like, you know, if somebody was like 30, 40 pounds overweight, but you know what? I've been there. I get that. I, I know how you feel. I felt worthless and like a failure and all these things. And, you know, I want to help you choose something better because when I was feeling that way, I chose drugs and I self-medicated and it led me down this horrific rabbit. And so we're able to communicate with them on a different level, on a different way than just typical like, all right, do 10 push-ups. Yeah. And through fitness, it was like a tool for people to change themselves from the inside out. And I was able to help show people what what the true benefits are. You know, the increased self-confidence, the the new establishment of community, health and fitness, all those things. And then when I transitioned into wanting to build more of a brand, I was like, okay, like I want to write some I don't want to just be a trainer. I felt like I was kept alive for a bigger reason than just to be a trainer. What else can I do? Mm. I just got really passionate about sharing my story. And that's when I wrote my first book from felony to fitness to free because the felony did come off my record back in 2014. I did follow all the stipulations the judge provided me. And I wanted to be able to show people the power of a second chance and that life's about the choices you make, not your circumstances and you know how to take a negative and turn it into a positive, all these things that I had done myself. I was like, all right, now how can I coach other people? I think there's so many people out there that are like looking to find themselves and discover purpose or start a coaching program. And it's like, look at you. I think the easiest thing is to look at what you've gone through and how it's helped you and then use that gift to help other people. It's mm-hmm. what you're doing. What's what I'm doing. So, and I just kept going. It was like, a, what's next? What's next? Okay. I've written one book. Can I write another one? I've written two. Can I write three? And then the more I started sharing my story, the more relatable people said they could relate to like what I went through, whether it was a mom with her kid or whether it was somebody who's just an early addiction or somebody who just would struggle to work out. I started to, they started to see themselves in my journey. Mm. And that was powerful for me because then I felt like I was really providing some substantial guidance and truth that they needed to hear to get better. And it's inspired a lot of the other modalities I use to share my story now between the podcast, between the books, between my Instagram, between going on other people's shows to improve, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, one of the interesting pieces that you're sort of extracting there is, is how fitness can be a vehicle for us to, to start to win the, win the battle with the victim, right? I think that all of us, all of us at some point in our life need to be able to face this part of us that holds us down from reaching our potential or having the relationship that we want or the career or the health or the fitness or like whatever it is. And I think the interesting part is that, you know, you've sort of merged personal, personal obstacles with fitness and sort of said, 
okay, we're going to improve your mindset while improving your body, you know, and, and merging those two things together. So when it, when it comes to people's stories and, and being able to help them face that victim, what are some of the steps that, that you've seen along the way? Like, where do people start? Because I think people hear this and they're like, okay, maybe I'm not going through what you went through, but I'm going through my own challenges relationally or, or, or whatever the case. I mean, even right now with COVID, I mean, I have seen the victim mentality just balloon. It's mm. it's really and and look, this isn't to. Well, I think it's and I think it's exposing people's problems internally in a in a more magnified scale, right? Yeah, because we're, people are more stressed out. They're more on edge. They're more anxious. So it's just creating like an even big, I mean, am I right? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, it, and it's not to diminish people's, the reality of people's challenges, right? right? I mean, I think people who are, who are honestly like living paycheck to paycheck, it's like, that's a very challenging space to be in mentally and emotionally. And then to have all that sort of pulled out from, from under you, it's like, yeah, that that's hard. That's challenging. No doubt about it. And there, there's room to do something, right? If you're sitting there for weeks on, you know, been sitting there for weeks on end, eating, you know, potato chips and mac and cheese and playing video games, uh, your victim, you've probably, you've probably sort of subsided and, and, you know, let the victim sort of take charge. And that's very hard to get out of. So, you know, when, when you look back on coming out of prison, starting your own business, how did you start to cope with and deal with and meet that victim that certainly wasn't gone, right? It's not like he just, disappear how did you start to face that part and work with it rather than against it well i think i had to really own the things i could control in my life because i think so many people they focus on things they can't control whether it's family members that that they want to come back around or it's a job that they they push so much of the power onto uh, off of themselves on anybody else i always encourage people to start with like writing down the things they can control okay so a good start would be like you can control your health you control your thoughts, you control how you treat people, you control how you treat yourself, you control what you eat. And then once you like start to establish some ownership, some, not all, because it's not like you go from like the, the pendulum doesn't just swing like from like, you know, zero to a hundred or whatever, like super quick, but you, you start to establish some traction and we start to establish some momentum and you're like, okay, like I'm now taking control of my health. That's a win. I'm now taking control of what I eat. That's a win. I'm now going to take control on the way I, you know, react and respond to other people's actions. That's a, and so you start building and building and building and building. I think the biggest mistake people make is they try to make all these changes at once, which ideally that'd be great. Sure. I mean, everybody would love to be like, yeah, tomorrow everything's going to go away, but it's not realistic. And I think we, we, we set these unrealistic expectations and it creates resentment within ourselves. And then we just end up like falling on our face because we're like, God dang it. Like, I wish I would have done this. And, um, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. hundred percent, man. hundred percent. And that's what I tell yeah. a lot of my clients is like, uh, even during COVID right now, like what can you control? Well, you can control how much media you watch, control who you follow on social media, control what you eat, control whether you're going to go out for a walk today. You can control whether you're, um, who you're going to surround yourself with. Like I am so picky about who I spend time with. And I'm almost to a, like an, I don't want to be arrogant that like, if you're not adding value into my life, and if you're not, if it's just, I, I don't, I, and I think it just goes back to, I want to accomplish some great things in life. I want people that are going to challenge me. I want people that are doing better than me in my life. And I think everybody has a responsibility in who they surround themselves with. Mm-hmm. And if they want to ch- create change, 
get in the, get in the arena with people who are creating change. Mm-hmm. Don't get in the same arena you've been in with people that are pessimistic and dragging you down and don't have goals and aren't aligned with you. And every day I'm learning more about what I'm aligned with, who I'm aligned like, because I think it's, it's the more work you do, you start to unpack even more truth about yourself. Mm. Right. And I think, uh, I mean, I'm learning even more. I'm taking this boundaries course from um, your buddy, Mark. And the more you sacrifice your truth and what you want and you relinquish control over, and you let other people control how you live your life, like it's going to impact you. Mm-hmm. And it's not like, uh, it's, it's not a once, you know, what you do it once and you wash your hands of it. It's, it's an everyday thing. So you can also control like going back to our, my original point, like what you're choosing to invest your time in. Like there's no better time than now to invest in yourself. You know, you don't have to, you know, I'm not saying you have to like start like a $10,000 course, but you can certainly, there's so many people offering things that, um, at a discounted level at freemium, like all these things, if you want to improve that are, that are experts, there's also a lot of time for you to spend like really working on your health and, you know, some, some daily habits. Cause Eventually, this pandemic is going to be, I mean, God, Lord willing, it's going to be gone and people are going to be able to get out. But the habits we're creating aren't going to be. So if you're spending the next three months getting into this victim mindset now and drinking every day and doing all these things, it's not going to go away. As a matter of fact, it's probably going to become even more rampant because then there's going to be a whole other um, level of stress added that now it's like back to reality. I got to start showing up to work now every day. Mm-hmm. I got bills that I got to pay off these um, these, you know, forbearance is over. Like I got to start paying bills again. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I think, I think, you know, we, how, how we show up in this time of, of downturn, how we show up in this time of lockdown, you know, I've, I've said it before on, on the show is like isolation equals amplification, right? So everything's being amplified right now in our lives, whether that's, the victim within us, whether that's the inner critic, whether that's the pessimist, like all those different parts are all being amplified. But look, there, there is one thing that I wanted to, to just talk about before we dive off, which is what would you say to the people who have uh, loved ones in their life, friends, mm-hmm. family members, et cetera, that are dealing with addiction and sometimes feel helpless to support them? Like, what, what do you say to them? How, how can they best support? Like, when you look back at where you were, what support could you have actually have used? Because I think it's very hard sometimes to sort of break through that barrier. Yeah, Connor. I mean, I think it's really uh, profound that you asked that. I get this question a ton. And I think the one constant I always tell people, there's a few things, okay? So number one, show up authentically in love if you can. I mean, it's, it's hard. Trust me, because like, I remember when I was a kid, I'm sure you can remember when you were a kid, if you're like a menace, you're like, man, like my parents must have. <laughs> but if you're a parent, just know that like whoever it is already feels like shit. Mm. So shaming them about it and chastising them and in a way that's like aggressive or whatever is not going to help them get what you, because ultimately what they want is for the loved one to stop doing what they're doing and come back to reality a bit, right? And it's not, it's not happening. With, with that kind of mentality, I think, right? I think the scare tactics have kind of run its course. But like loving them and just trying to support them, even if it's from a distance, because we all know that it's it's really hard to not want to always be there for them when they're going through that. And I think we can fall codependent, right? And, we, and I know like it's codependency is huge in addiction. So like not letting the way they are 
handling their situation impact you, your mental health, 100%. Yeah. Um, I would also join like a support group because I think one of the biggest issues, at least with my experience, is people feel that they're alone. They're ashamed to talk about it because they're like, oh man, like I raised them in a great school. Like my husband makes like 500 grand a year. Like we want all these vacations. Like why this have to happen to, to him or her? And you feel shame in that if you're a mom or you're, if it's vice versa, dad, cause I mean, more so moms come to me. So that's the only reason I'm saying the mom and, and just when you join a support group, you know, you're not alone. Plus it's a, you're able to like vent to people about your, the issues and like you're able to bounce ideas off each other. And they're typically in some of these support groups, there's therapists and there's people in the in addiction community who have experience in dealing with this stuff. That they're able to help. So those are my three things. Number one, show up and love them. Don't shame them for where they are. Number two, you know, read the book codependent no more. Um, I don't know if you've, have you read that Connor? Yeah. 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 I've recommended it to a few people. Yeah. And just know that like, it's going to be really hard on the fall in that codependent trap. Um, but that book can give you some great insight. I mean, I'm not, I'm no expert in codependent, uh, and a codependency. Number three is to join some sort of online or, or in person, Alan, whatever it is so that you don't feel like you're alone so that you can embrace this new community you're in that you're going to have to navigate through. Nice. Awesome, brother. Awesome. Well, if people want to learn more about you and the work that you're doing, where can they go? Where can they learn more about you? Yeah, I'm pretty active um, on Instagram at Doug Bobst. And then, I mean, my podcast, The Adversity Advantage, where I interview people from all walks of life on how they've overcome trials and turned them into triumphs. So on iTunes, my books are on Amazon. And yeah, I mean, just reach out. I'm happy to help in any way I can. Awesome, brother. Awesome. Well, we'll have all the links in the show notes. So you can go and check out a little bit more of Doug. And uh, don't forget to share this podcast episode with someone that you know will benefit from listening to it and uh, leave us a rating and review on whatever platform you are tuning into us in. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. 